The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, we're going to pray and then ask uh, and ask the Lord to help us and then pick up where we left off last month. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he bore the judgment that we deserved so that we would be free. We give you thanks and praise that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Father, we also give you thanks that you have, through the blood of Christ and the work of your spirit, created one new man. You have knit us together as brothers in your family. And we pray that you would edify us today, strengthen our desire for good solid biblical friendship. In Jesus' name, amen. So last month, uh, we've been on this theme of biblical manhood, and last month we started The Christian Man and His Friends, and we started with the challenge of friendship, and we'll just do this quickly since we kind of started late. Kevin DeYoung says, friendship is the most important but least talked about relationship in the church. And then we talked about true friendship among men is rare. Um, Women are much uh, more likely to have more close friends than men are. And speaking of women, I just should tell you that the decorations are not to celebrate biblical manhood, but... um, we have a, wa- a baby shower this afternoon, and they wanted to get an early start. And so being good Christian gentlemen, we didn't mind, right? So uh, at least they're not diapers. <laughs> so then we looked at the elements of true or biblical friendship, and it's described a number of ways. A lot of this actually is taken from uh, David and Jonathan's friendship. Souls knit together, beautiful picture. It's covenantal, right? So David and Jonathan covenant with each other. It's encouraging in God. So in other words, it's a God-centered relationship where you encourage the other in God. And then uh, drawing from a a phrase that Paul uses in Philippians 2.20, kindred spirit. And as I pointed out last time, the ESV is incredibly blah, at this point, I have no one like him. The New American Standard, far superior, says, for I have no one else of kindred spirit. And that word that I mentioned last, last month is actually the idea that you could even say soulmate. So the idea of, a, of your soul is knit together. Then we talked about uh, the benefits of heart-to-heart or biblical friendship And the first benefit is that those friendships keep us from the danger of isolation. So I was preaching in uh, in Florida and a guy came up to me and I mentioned how uh, people that are that are bitter often are are isolationists. And he comes up to me and he introduces himself and he says, hi, he says, I'm an isolationist. And um, of course, the scriptures tell us that he who isolates himself, right? He who isolates himself pursues his own desires and rages 
against all sound wisdom, right? So I don't know, I know we're wired differently, but some of us have, may have the uh, bent to being more of an isolationist, right? So an isolationist keeps themselves from, from close friendships. And it's dangerous to actually be in isolation, isn't it? It's actually really dangerous, far more dangerous than we sometimes think. You know, we have, um, we have our Western culture, the self-made man, the rugged individual, and all the rest. And um, listening to a book on, on uh, Audible right now on Jim Bridger. Ever hear of Jim Bridger? Uh, a phenomenal guy, right? But not everybody's wired to be that guy that spends months on end all by himself trapping beaver, all right? So you don't, you don't need to trap anything anymore, really. But it's, it's just dangerous. And we have this idea that, that, that we're self-sufficient, and that's a lie. The isolationist thinks they're self-sufficient. They don't need anybody, and that's a lie. The other thing friendships do is they keep us from the danger of apostasy, so, by the way, isolation and then apostasy often go in hand in hand. And so what you notice over the years, and Daniel, isn't this right? The people that end up falling away end up cutting themselves off from more and more relationships. Okay? And so apostasy and isolation actually go hand in hand. Good biblical friendship actually keeps us from the danger of apostasy. Why? So we encourage one another day after day so that we're not deceived or hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So a good friend, a good biblical friend, is one that will speak truth to you in love. A good biblical friend is one who will not only encourage you, but when necessary, call you out. And we need, we need people that love us enough to speak truth to us, right? So that brings us to the third, which is where we pick up uh, from, from last time, and that is biblical friendship or heart-to-heart friendship provides emotional ballast for the soul. So um, you might think that you don't have any emotions. <clears throat> Suppressing your emotions doesn't mean you don't have emotions. What do I mean by ballast? <clears throat> What's that? Steady, upright in a storm, right? So um, let me make sure I started this. Roger will get upset with me. Okay, maybe it's going. I don't know. So we'll see. <clears throat> so in, uh, in the old days, in the ship, what you would do is you would take barrels of water and you would put them in the hull of the ship to create ballast for the ship. Right. So ballast is the idea of of balance and buoyancy. Right. And so a good biblical friendship will actually help us maintain emotional ballast. Right. Now, I have some examples of that, but let me just say first that uh, a heart to heart friend actually is one that weeps when we weep and rejoices when we rejoice, right? 
Anybody think of a verse that is similar to that? Okay. How about rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? Romans 12, 15. You, you, know, you know that you have a real biblical friend when they join you in your time of sorrow. That's, that's how you know you have a real biblical friend, is that they weep when you weep. They're heartbroken when you're heartbroken. They sorrow when you sorrow. But they also rejoice when you rejoice. And uh, I want to say that um, rejoicing with somebody who's rejoicing is maybe a bigger challenge than weeping with those who weep. It's relatively easy if you have a heart to feel compassion with somebody who's enduring hardship, right? There is such a thing as a sympathetic tear, right? But when somebody's rejoicing, it's often because something good has happened to them. A real friend actually not only enters into your sorrow, but enters into your joy and rejoices when good things happen to you. And so this, this picture um, of, of having a friend that, that just provides that, that sense of emotional balance is significant. There's a book, an old book, by a guy named Hugh Black called The Art of Friendship. And he says this, he says, To have a heart that we can trust and into which we can pour our griefs, our doubts, and our fears is already to take the edge from grief and the sting from doubt and the shade from fear. Joy also demands that its joy be shared. A simple, generous friendship will thus add to the joy and divide the sorrow. And that's what, that's what a real, genuine, biblical friend does, is they double your joy and they have half your sorrow. And so we have two examples in Scripture that I think illustrate this for us very, very powerfully. And the first, of course, is David and Jonathan. So go ahead and turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 23. So let me just set the context. Of course, Daniel did a brilliant job preaching through 1 Samuel. Um, you remember, everybody remember that series, 1 Samuel? Nobody remembers? Okay. Um, in spite of spectacular sermon titles. Um, so, so Saul is, is ruthlessly chasing David. And the, the scene that sets up this passage is that Saul had just actually just done the unthinkable. 
He had gone to a place, uh, basically a priestly center, a place called Nob, because the priest gave David refuge unknowingly that he was, he thought he was actually serving Saul, right? And he gives David Goliath's sword and gives him some food. And uh, there's, um, was, it, was he um, an Ammonite? Uh, Doeg, um, a Moabite, and Doeg actually sees David. Um, Doeg is there. He's one of Saul's men. And Doeg goes and reports to Saul that he saw David. And, of course, Saul and his men come to Nob, and they, they do the absolute unthinkable. Um, Saul actually tells um, his men to, to kill all the priests. And of course, do they? No. By the way, a good example of civil disobedience. Okay? Reject, reject the order of the king because it would have defied the command of God. And so, but Doeg, he's a Moabite, so he's, you know, what does he care? So he goes and he slaughters 80 priests at Nob. One priest escapes. And so David now understands that not only is Saul relentlessly pursuing him, but he's just done the unthinkable. He's killed all of these priests. And here's the problem is that Saul has already repented twice of pursuing David. Right. David, forgive me, my son. Right. And and of course, David doesn't trust him. But David and Jonathan had made this covenant. So in first Samuel, chapter 23, you have starting at verse 15. Now, David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, do not be afraid because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you and you will be king over Israel and I will be next to you. And Saul, my father, knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord and David stayed at Horesh while Jonathan went to his house. Now, there's a lot of interesting things about this. Uh, one is Saul's looking all over the place for David and cannot find him. And Jonathan just goes straight to David. Right. But here's 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 probably the most important thing. Does Jonathan go to David at great risk to himself? Of course he does. Could Jonathan have just texted David? <laughs> Could he just shot him an email or or even taken that kid that that was chasing the arrows and just said, hey, take this. Right. He could have done all of that. But instead, he was physically present. He went and was physically present with David. In fact, Joel Beakey, in his little book on friendship, says, never underestimate the power of personal presence. And so he goes and he's personally present with David. And then the text says, and he encouraged him in God. And so here's David. David's weary. David is is probably afraid. Safe to say David was spent. Emotionally spent. 
And so what does God do for his servant who is weary, afraid, and spent? He sends a friend. That's God's remedy for David. And then this friend, Jonathan, goes and, and he strengthened, literally the text is, he strengthened his hand, that is David's hand, in God. And so David's, in a sense, his emotional ballast was restored by the words of a present friend who spoke to him truth and remained to him closer than a brother. And so the affectional power of a spiritual friendship is absolutely priceless. Absolutely priceless. And so, brothers, we should take this to heart. We've been looking at biblical manhood now for well over a year. And I think all of us in this room would agree that that um, that manhood is on the decline and masculinity is on the decline and 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 we need to recover a biblical manhood, not a not a, um, a cultural machismo. Right. But we also have to understand that at the end of the day, none of us are as strong as we think we are. None of us are as strong as we think we are. And what do we need in our time of despair? What do we need in our time of fear? What do we need when we have been absolutely spent? We need God to send us a friend. The next example is Paul and Titus. Okay? Now, I don't think anybody could accuse David of not being a manly man, right? When was the last time you took 200 Philistine foreskins? <laughs> By the way, there's a prerequisite for getting those foreskins, and that is all those Philistines need to be dead. They didn't give him up willingly. Okay. David's manly man. Jonathan is a manly man. And yet their souls were knit together and they strengthened each other in God. Well, the Apostle Paul. I don't know about you, but I count Paul as a manly man. All right. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 7... Second Corinthians chapter seven. I'm going to read the, the text, verses five and six. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us. By the coming of Titus. Okay. So here's, here's a little bit of the background. So the apostle is, is on the move. He has actually had to send 
um, a, a severe letter back to the Corinthians, and he sends it by the hand of Titus. Okay? I always find it interesting. I don't want to read too much into historical detail. I always find it interesting that he sends this severe letter by the hand of Titus and not by the hand of Timothy. Okay? Now, there could be other reasons for that, but let me just say, Timothy is, is often, and I think accurately, characterized as being a little more on the timid side, right? Titus, this, this is the way my imagination works, Titus um, looked like Al Akins. Okay? Except his hair wasn't that long. Um, he, had a, he had his high and tight, um, but probably square jaw, Roman nose, no neck, right? So Paul's going to send, and, and of course, total, uh, you know, knit together with Paul. And so he's got this severe letter. He sends it to the Corinthians. So have you ever, have you ever sent a letter to somebody that was, um, that was necessary but painfully uncomfortable? You ever sent an email where you feel like, I've got to lay this out, I've got to, and, and you send it. What, what's going on inside of your own heart after you've hit send or you've dropped it in the mail? Okay, not a client. Not a client. Okay? What's going on inside? What's that? What was that? I, I, I did not hear that. What? what? You're worried. You're, you're anxious. You're anxious. So Paul had been with the Corinthians for 18 months. Did he love the Corinthians? Absolutely. So he sends a severe letter so he knows that they're going to read it. And of course, he's, Paul is actually feeling anxiety over how they're going to respond. Okay. Do you have at least a little bit of that sense in, in the past when you've had to say some hard things to somebody, right? So here's Paul, and this is the way he describes himself, afflicted on every side. Okay? So, so not only does Paul have this, this relational anxiety regarding the Corinthians, but he also just has, he's, he's pressed from every side, right? I mean, let's face it, Paul, Paul knew what it was to go into a hard place, preach the gospel, and not be welcomed. And to have persecution, and to have oppression, and in fact, afflicted from every side is the idea of, of being pressed in from every side. And so he goes ministering the word, feeling those pressures, but anxiously waiting to hear from Titus, so that when Paul says, our flesh had no rest... He's not talking about just simply being tired from ministry. He's describing the restlessness that comes from the anxiety and the struggles. And then he says, conflicts without, that is pressure, opposition. And then he says, this is Paul, fears within. At this stage in, in, in Paul's life and ministry, 
You could say he was emotionally discouraged, filled with anxiety, even from fear. And this is, this is the great Apostle Paul that we're talking about. And he, you, you, you could characterize Paul's state as being depressed, downcast, or disheartened. And so, what does God do for his discouraged, fearful, weary, oppressed servant? How does, Paul, uh, how does God turn around and encourage Paul and bring him back to that place in a sense of emotional balance? Did he give him some super revelation of the third heaven? The answer is no. Did he give him uh, dreams and visions that lifted his soul? The answer is no. What did God do? He sent him a friend. You see it, God brought comfort, how? By the coming of Titus. God brought comfort to his despondent apostle by sending a friend, a flesh and blood human being that God sent at the right time. And so the great apostle had his emotional ballast restored through the coming of Titus. Esther Edwards, Jonathan and Sarah's oldest daughter, who married Aaron Burr Sr., who was the father of Aaron Burr Jr., of the famous Burr and Hamilton um, conflict, Esther Edwards Burr wrote these words. She says, Nothing is more refreshing to the soul except communion with God himself than the company and society of a friend. A heart-to-heart friend exemplified in these two passages show us that A true heart-to-heart friend is somebody that labors for your joy and your progress in the faith. Somebody that is a co-laborer for your joy in Christ. By the way, both of these are passages. I just alluded to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 25, where Paul tells the Philippians that it is his desire to stay on for their joy and progress in the faith. And then first, or 2 Corinthians 1.24, we don't lord it over you, but we are co-laborers for your joy. True, true, biblical, heart-to-heart friends seek each other out. They encourage each other in God. They speak truth to each other, even when it's not comfortable. And they provide, in a sense, emotional ballast even in the midst of, or especially in the midst of turmoil. And what I want to tell all of us is you need a friend like that. We mentioned last time that there are a lot of things that may bind us together as friends, okay? But there's nothing that binds us together better or closer 
than the bonds that we have in Jesus Christ. And so um, you may enjoy sitting down and, and watching a, a ball game with a friend. You may sit, you may enjoy going over, and I have no, no idea why this seems so enjoyable to some of you, but going over and smoking a cigar with a buddy, all right? Okay, whatever. And um, there are things that we, that, that we have common bonds around, but a true spiritual friend is somebody who can look you in the eye and say, how's your soul? A true spiritual friend is somebody that can look you in the eye and say, I need your help. I'm struggling with something. A true spiritual friend is somebody that actually will strengthen your heart and your hand in God. And we all need that. All of us. If you, if you think that somehow you're the exception, the Bible has a word for you. It's just fool. It's fool. You're not an exception. You are a weak, frail human being just like all the rest. And you need that friend who can actually speak truth in love and who loves at all times and is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, we don't really have time for this part, but we'll zip through it. Let me just talk about counsels for nurturing and protecting biblical friendships. So let's say, let's say that God actually blesses you with a friend that's a bosom friend, right? A, a friend that you actually can, can unbosom your own heart and soul to, okay? And they're invaluable to you. Jonathan Holmes says, the more explicitly biblical a friendship, therefore the greater we can expect the opposition to be. Because Satan will spare no effort to mar or destroy the image of wit the witness of God, believers must be on guard against spiritual threats to biblical friendship. Okay? So in other words, in God's economy, that spiritual friend is so valuable that Satan is opposed to that friendship. Okay. Satan will seek to undermine that friendship. And the reason Satan will seek to undermine that friendship is because of all of the wonderful benefits that come from that friendship. So if Satan can rob you of those benefits by robbing you of that friendship, then he will do it. All right. And so... There are things that we need to remember as we try to nurture. So this is just assuming that you have a friendship like that. Okay? If you don't, pray to God that God will give you one. All right? Seek the Lord that he would provide a friend for you like that. Okay? Don't, after we're putting tables away, just say, Hey, would you like to be that friend? for me okay that's that's not exactly the way to go 
go about it, all right? Um, pray that God gives you that friend, right? But if you have that friend, then take to heart these counsels. First, be constant and consistent. So uh, Derek Kidner in his commentary on Proverbs has a great little section on friendship. It's really, really wonderful. He says, talking of the friend, constancy is his first feature. Fairweather friends are many in Proverbs, but there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother and loveth at all times. In case the reader should think only of the friendship he hopes to receive, he's urged to give this kind of loyalty, especially to the old friends of the family who may easily be dropped in the search for new company, but whose staunchness would stand any test. And so the first counsel in nurturing a godly friendship is be constant. Don't be the fair weather friend. Now, you're going to have friends that you've had for, for a long time, and there may be periods of time because of distance or work or various things where you're not able to be in touch as often as you should. But here's the thing. As you get back together, you pick up right where you left off. There's no awkwardness. Why? Because you've been knit together. All right? But I want to say that even in those friendships, and I think we could all do better in this, make more of an effort to stay in touch with those people. All right. Um, I had a good friend, Steve Fernandez, pastored at Community Bible Church in Vallejo, California, and big church, thriving church, Bible college, seminary. The guy was busier than a one-armed paper hanger with an itch. And I will tell you what, every few months he would call me and say, hey, let's meet in Placerville at the Buttercup restaurant and get together. And he was always the one who initiated it. And sometimes it convicted me that he was always the one who initiated it, right? Okay, but, but be a constant friend. Be a consistent friend. And remember those that have stuck it out with you through thick and thin. And make sure you're just as loyal to them as they are to you. Next. Yes, that's the text. (laughs) Be lovingly truthful. So just listen to these Proverbs. 27, 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. 27.17, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love. Robert Murray McShane, who um, died just shy of his 30th birthday, pastored in Dundee, Scotland. What's interesting about McShane is that he had... He had about three or four close bosom friends that these guys were, were, were tight with each other. And um, McShane says in his memoirs, he says, the one who loves you the most is the one who will speak the most truth to you. The one who loves you the most is the one who will speak the most truth to you. 
And so in a good biblical friendship, in order for that friendship to be nourished and, and, and built up, we need to be lovingly truthful with each other. Now, that doesn't mean that you, that you set yourself up and you go, hey, I got a really good friend. I think now I'm going to be the spiritual policeman in his life and actually write him up for every infraction that I see. Okay, that's, by the way, that's not a good friend. That's, that's a short friendship. Okay, nobody likes that guy. Okay, so what does it mean to be lovingly truthful? In a friendship, does love cover a multitude of sins? Absolutely, right? But being lovingly truthful means that if you see something in me or I see something in you that is a danger to your soul or that mars your witness or testimony or weakens or even undermines your walk with God, my love for you, your love for me, compels us to speak the truth in love. It also compels us to receive those wounds as faithful wounds. Okay? Now, I don't know about you, but getting rebuked is not my favorite thing. Anybody just like love being rebuked? Like just you wake up Sunday morning and you go, Lord, please send five or six people just to rebuke me today, right? <laughs> nobody does that, right? No, because nobody likes being corrected. Nobody likes being rebuked. But when a friend, when a friend does it, receive it as the faithful wounds of a friend and be willing to give them, all right? So being faithfully truthful, lovingly truthful, but then finally relationally wise. Um, relationally wise. So too often what happens in a, good, in a good friendship is that we take it for granted and then sometimes we fail to exercise wisdom in that friendship and so being relationally wise, drawing again from Derek Kidner, he says, um, you have respect for one another's feelings, right? So in other words, just because you're a good friend doesn't mean that you can just trample the other person, right? Have you ever said something to somebody because you felt so comfortable around them that the minute it came out, you really wished that you hadn't said it. Okay. Some of you are grinning. Some of you are just nodding your head in shame. All right. The rest of you are acting like you don't know what I'm talking about, but you're the worst offenders of all. And there's, a, there's a sense where we can feel so comfortable with somebody that we end up saying very unwise and even hurtful things, okay? Um, sometimes those things relate to that person's wife or their kids or something dear to them, and you have to be relationally wise. You have to respect the other person's um, feelings, 
All right? It's just common sense. Common sense. By the way, sometimes we feel comfortable with people in such a way that we say things that may not be, um, let's say, emotionally insensitive, but we may end up saying things that may be um, morally inappropriate. The more casual we are with people, the easier it is to slip up in those areas. The next thing on being relationally wise is, uh, Kidner says, is refusal to trade on his affection. Do you guys know what that means? To trade on someone's affection, right? To trade on someone's affection means that you count on or expect or even demand somebody's support and loyalty based solely on your personal relationship with them instead of personal integrity, okay? And so there are all kinds of examples in the Proverbs where, and you understand what I'm saying, so I may, I may um, expect something of you to do me a favor just simply because you're my friend and I don't count the cost regarding integrity, or the idea that that might go against your principles. Okay? So a good friend actually doesn't do that. Okay? Um, let me throw out a few other things here. Outstaying one's welcome. Forcing one's friendship on a person. Proverbs 25, 17. Some of these are... Um, some of these proverbs we just smile at when we read them. And then somebody's face comes to mind. Now, this is one that is especially relevant for me. Let your foot rarely be in your neighbor's house, or he will become weary of you and hate you. <laughs> so I have this I'm going to put this as a plaque on my front door no <laughs> have you ever had have you ever had a person in your life that that in a sense just tries too hard they try too hard to be that good friend and they end up wearing their welcome thin, right? Better to be invited, <laughs> right, than to always be imposing yourself. Um, Proverbs 27, 14. <clears throat> Here we go. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be reckoned a curse to him. And so uh, let's just say being hearty, overly enthusiastic at the wrong time when it is unwelcome is a stress on friendship. Uh, there are other proverbs, not knowing when a joke has gone too far. <laughs> I don't know about you, but this is uh, something that happens. Uh, 26, 18, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death. So is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, was I not joking? 
Finally, guard your speech. And I want to say that in a, in a close heart-to-heart friendship, you're going to say things to that person that you're not going to say to maybe anybody else. And there's something that's right and, and good about that, but that doesn't mean that we can be careless with our speech. And so Blas Pascal says, I set this down as a fact that if all men knew what each other said or what each said of the other, there would not be four friends in the world. So sinful or hurtful speech is not only, in a sense, a lack of relational wisdom, but it can undermine friendship and diminish truth. Proverbs 16, 28, a perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Proverbs eleven thirteen: he who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. Have you ever have you ever found out that somebody that you perceive to be an incredibly close friend had said things about you to somebody else? You ever had that experience? First of all, it's um it's a painful experience. I have a friend that I've had for over 25 years. And I continually get reports of things that he says about me to other people. And it's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. What does it do to a friendship? It undermines trust. And it certainly calls into question one's loyalty. Many true friendships have been deeply wounded, if not outright destroyed, by words that have been spoken behind the person's back. The damage can be irreversible. Proverbs eighteen nineteen: a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a citadel. So here you have this picture of, of the brother who's been offended. And now he's like a fortified city. And the contention between the two parties are now like bars. So there's a, there's a, there's an impenetrable barrier between the two. And so, brothers, biblical friendship, heart to heart friendship, is a gift from God. And it is invaluable. Those friendships are built on Christ, those friendships are spiritual. And they need to be nurtured and protected because they are invaluable and therefore need to be cherished. Okay. And so may God, may God grant all of us friends like that 
Because you may think that going from day to day life, you're okay. But there will be a time when you wish to God that you had a friend like that if you don't. And when that time comes and you have that friend, you'll be thanking God for his kindness to you. Amen? All right. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, how we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus, who is indeed that friend that sticks closer than a brother. And Father, we pray that you would help us to build godly friendships and nurture those godly friendships and that those godly friendships would be for the good and the prosperity of our own souls. And Father, we pray for, for those here today who, who might be, in, in, in these terms, friendless. We pray that you'd provide a friend. Father, for those who have those friendships, we pray that we would fiercely guard them and that we would nourish them. Father, thank you for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.